been a Christian for a while, you've been in the church for a while, especially you guys that are well-traveled, you international folks. Um, there's a lot of reasons that many professing Christians really don't like biblical preaching. Um, you know, in seminary, we look at a lot of these kinds of things. Why do people who profess to be Christians, why do people who profess to believe that the word of that the Bible is the word of God, um, why do they shy away from many, many things that are in Scripture? <clears throat> and one of those things is the fact that um, salvation, biblical salvation, no, makes no provision for human pride. <laughs> you know, there's no room, as the Apostle Paul says, there's no room for boasting. The biblical message of salvation annihilates any possible self-righteousness. Now, this is a problem for some people. They want to feel like they did it. They want to feel like it's their initiative. Um, you actually read the Bible and you, you realize it's all God. It's God's initiative. Um, it's not something that we can take any credit for. Again, I go back to the Apostle Paul. You can't boast. If you're a Christian, you can't boast. You can never boast. You'll never boast. <laughs> and when you get in front of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, there'll be nothing to boast about but, but Him, right? This is how the Bible presents salvation to those who will hear it. The Bible's clear. We've talked about it in this series. We will not come to God without God. We don't want God. Not really. People like a little religion. We like a little self-righteousness. We like to pat ourselves on the back and feel good about ourselves. The Bible's clear. Natural man does not want God. Does not want Him. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God. I want you to hear that. That He might bring us to God. You're not coming. I'm not coming. You know, I remember when I was first converted at 28, I was kind of proud of myself. I thought, man, I, I got this thing sorted out, right? I sorted it out. Um, why can't you understand it? I understand it. I had totally missed the... I, I grew up in a you know, pretty nominal church, and, and I, I had no concept... I had no concept of, of God's drawing and sovereignty and working in my life to bring me to Himself. I thought I had figured it out. And a lot of folks in the Christian church talk that way. Let me just share Romans 3 with you. I shared this with you a couple of weeks ago, but you have to get this right. You will not praise God for His amazing grace that we just sang about to the degree that you ought, lest you understand this. You've got to understand Romans 3. Verses 10 through 12. There is none righteous. That, that's you and me. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understand. There's none who seek for God. You thought you sought for God. No, you didn't. You never sought for God. Lest God draw you. This is how amazing His grace is, right? It is truly amazing. Against your natural inclination, He drew you to Himself, right? This is what the Bible's teaching. There's none who does good. You know, the, the proverbial question, what about, what about that good person? There are no good persons in relation to the Bible, in relation to the goodness of God. 
No one's good. Now, there can be relative, I guess, relative degrees of goodness within humanity, but as compared to God, as compared to the holy, holy, holy God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is the great weakness of the church. God willing, in the last eight weeks, we have begun to understand why we should fear the Creator. So Romans 3 is clear. This is God's initiative. I don't want you to ever forget this. I want you to dwell on this. I want you to learn this. I want you to drill down on this. As a biblically literate Christian, God takes the initiative. All you got to do is go read Hebrews 11. Just go read Hebrews 11, where God talks about faith. And you see that God warned Noah. God came to Abraham. God blessed Sarah. It's always, it's always God's initiative. So we've talked a lot about the nominal church in this series. I trust that the series has challenged you to, to take a hard look at all aspects of God, not just the aspects that we tend to want to look at. Let me ask you this question. Is it true in your experience? I want you to think about your Christian experience. Is it true that most who profess faith in Jesus Christ are really more interested I mean, they're really more interested in someone or something or some accomplishment or some recognition or some acquisition, some security, some comfort, some experience, some worldly pleasure, more so than they are interested in God. Isn't that who most professing Christians or a lot of professing Christians really are, apart from all the church going and Jesus talk? Monday through Saturday, I'm really loving and pursuing and wanting this. My, my affections are really on this thing, you know, whatever it is, more so than God. Again, it's a tragedy in much of the modern church, but it's shocking if you, if you think about it. Uh, you, you may have never thought about it, but it is shocking. How could a creature be more interested in something created than in the Creator? How is that possible? How is that really logically, rationally, intellectually possible, emotionally possible. How is it possible that I would be more interested in career or money or family or children? You name it. How could I be more interested in those kinds of things than I could be in the one who created me from the dust of the ground? It's, it's, it's just stunning. It's shocking. It's a that that's a hard fact according to Scripture. The Bible is clear. God the Son and God the Spirit must bring us to God the Father or nothing's going to happen. Religion might happen, but salvation is not going to happen. We are utterly lost and hopelessly damned without His coming, His atonement, His work of regeneration, without God bringing us to God. And there he is, right? We're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks. There he is. He's in a manger. God's in a manger. I always, I, I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, I always struggle at Christmas. I always struggle at Easter. How do you preach Christmas and Easter in any possible way that is appropriate or adequate? You can't do it. No preacher, any preacher who's self-aware, he can't do it. You can't get there. It's too big. You know, it's, it, it changes everything. It's the demarcation between an eternity in heaven and an eternity in hell. You can't, you can't get there. But there he is in the manger. So I want to begin this way. 
I want to begin with this question. Why is he there? Why is he in the manger? Now, I could predict what most of you probably would say. But why is he there? Ultimately, he's there for the glory of God. You walk into your average church. Your average person sitting in the pew would have probably said, he's there because he loves me. Now, obviously, he loves his people. But that's not the preeminent reason that he's on the cross. I want to share a couple of verses with you to back that up. This is another important element of understanding the amazing grace of God. How does the Bible talk about it? God has done all things as the prophet wrote for the glory of God, Isaiah 43, 7. God says he claimed Israel as his own to show his glory, Isaiah 49, 3. God says he chose the Jewish nation that he might, that they might be for him a people of renown for praise and for glory, Jeremiah 13, 11. The divine initiative to save is as the apostle writes to the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1, 12. And Jesus redeemed a people out of death and hell. Yes, because he loves us, but preeminently, Ephesians 1, 6, for the praise of the glory of the grace of God, that God may be glorified forever in the sacrificial redemption of a people. Yes, God loves you, but don't ever misunderstand. God is God-centered. He's radically God-centered. I want you to understand this is for the glory of God. God is always doing whatever he does for the glory of God. Don't ever think it's all about you. It's, it's not. I don't care what your preacher used to, how I used to preach it. It's not about you. It's preeminently, it's preeminently about the glory of God. You remember when Jesus was about to go to the cross. You remember what he prayed, John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name. That's first. That's first. So get it right. Let's get it. Let's think about it right. Let's think about it biblically. That's what it's about. The glory of God. And I'm the beneficiary of the mercy and kindness and love of God. So let's not be misinformed. Again, God is the most God-centered person in the universe. He is no idolater. He doesn't love you more than he loves the triune Godhead. Okay? He doesn't love you more than he loves the triune Godhead. Again, it's an important distinction that I think is lost on a lot of folks. And again, it's good news since he's our reward. You'll have to think about that a little bit. So Christmas and Easter are God's remedy to the insurmountable problem that we've been talking about. God is holy. We're not. Um, we've noted repeatedly through the series that one sin brought down the cosmos. Some of you have never thought about that before. I pray that you think about it because you've sinned hundreds of thousands of times. One sin brought down the whole cosmos. You've sinned hundreds of thousands of times. The series... This last series, I think we understand what we deserve. One sin brought down the cosmos. You've sinned hundreds of thousands of times. You need a Savior.
So do I. We are in desperate need of a Savior. So let's go all the way back. Was Genesis 3, was that some unexpected um, event? God did, not, God did not foresee that, that man would rebel and fall? Did God have to come up with some 12th hour remedy? Was Jesus Christ some stopgap ad hoc measure? You know what the Bible says if you're biblically literate. You know what it says. I know that many, many churches don't talk much about it. Um, but how far back does this go? It goes all the way back into eternity past. How long has God loved His people? All the way back into eternity past, right? I think Chris brought this text up uh, Thursday night at Men's Bible Study. Ephesians 1, 4-6. He, the Father, chose us in Him, the Son, before the foundation of the world. Now, salvation is way bigger than your average Christian even can begin to describe. Because they think it was like, well, I prayed a prayer and I'm in. That's about as much as they can talk about it. Well, if you actually read your Bible, you realize that I was loved on the far side of eternity past. I was chosen in the Son. And He predestined me to continue Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 to, as, a, as an adopted Son through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. When you think about amazing grace... Your mind should go back to eternity past. And if your mind doesn't go back to eternity past, you're thinking superficially about it. Okay? God didn't start thinking about you when you were conceived or when you were born or when you became an adult. God has loved you from an eternity past. Yeah. Amazing grace? I think so. Amazing grace. And you guys know what Paul says in Romans 8. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He has glorified. This is all past tense. It was done in eternity past. Amazing grace? Amen. It was done in eternity past. Of course, it has to be worked out in time, in your life. But it was done in eternity past. If you're not familiar with these doctrines, I just encourage you. I have many good books I can share with you about this. Of course, you can just spend time in the Bible. You can spend time in the Bible. So, here's another question to consider. Who murdered Jesus? Who murdered Jesus? The Jews, yes. The Gentiles, yes, but preeminently what? This was God's plan. The triune God decreed that this would come about. Acts 2.23, Christ was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. What men of their own free will meant for evil, God meant for good. Okay? Men of their own free, depraved, rebellious wills murdered the Son. God of His own free, loving, gracious will redeemed His people. Ultimately, God the Father did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up, Romans 8.32. Ultimately, God the Son laid His life down of His own initiative, John 10.18. The crucifixion of God was God-ordained, God-decreed, God-planned, God-initiated event. 
Amazing grace? Yeah. Amazing grace. Jesus told Pilate, remember what he told him? He said, I was born for this. Of course, Pilate had no clue what he was talking about. I was born for this hour. That's why I came. Amazing grace? Yeah. You, to whom God owes nothing but justice, as we've seen over and over and over the last few weeks, One reason I hate man-centric churches and gospels where, where, the, where, the, where the person in the pew comes to believe that it's really about him and that God is here to serve him and that I'm not here to serve God. God's here to make my life good. And if God doesn't make my life good, then something's wrong with God. It's, there's nothing wrong with me, right? These therapeutic uh, gospels, these man-centric kind of gospels. One reason I don't like them, for, and there are many, is that it tends to turn the person's focus on themselves, right? And you get all of these why me questions. I've been here 18 years almost, and I can't tell you how many why me questions I've gotten. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? But what question does God answer? <laughs> he doesn't answer a lot of why questions. It's just not, he's not interested in answering your why questions, in all honesty. You know why? <laughs> you know why? He's the answer to your why question, right? Trust me. You got a problem? Trust me. I'm trustworthy. You can trust me. I'm faithful. We talked a lot about it already. You can trust me. He's the answer. He's the answer to the why questions that you can't fathom. He's the answer. You're supposed to just default to the goodness of God. No matter how tragic or calamitous the situation is, my God is doing something I cannot begin to understand. This is what the Lord would have us do. But the who question, right? We really should ask the what and who question. It's, a, it's the question that the, the Philippian jailer asked Paul. What must I do? What? To be saved. God does answer that question. The answer to the what question is who? Jesus Christ. Peter says it, right? I think it's Peter. Yeah. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that may be given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. So we've gotten the bad news the last eight weeks. We are all subject to wrath, vengeance, recompense, and terror. God should just judge us. But yes, there is amazing grace. There is amazing grace. And I just want to say it to you again. I think I've already mentioned it. If you're not stunned by this, you're not understanding it. If it doesn't stun you into an alternate lifestyle, okay, <laughs> which is just New Testament. Well, it's Old Testament too. The guys that met him, the guys that knew him, everything changed. Not instantly, you know, things begin to change instantly. Some things change. It takes a while, right? I'm a little slow sometimes. But the focus and the affection of life changes. Christ is the focus. My, my, my affections fall to him first. Then I know how to love my wife and my kids. I don't know how to love them if I don't love Christ first. I'm clueless. I don't have a clue. 
So we're going to look, we're going to take a few minutes and look at the astonishing account in the Bible about the Lord Jesus, what He has done for us. I wanted to lay the groundwork. It started in eternity past. It's way back here. It's way back here. It's like Piper says, you can't go back that far. You can't go back that deep. That's how deep your salvation is. If you own it, if you belong to Christ, that's how deep it is. That's how old it is. That's how huge it is. It's back there. It's way back there. Listen, do me a favor. When someone asks you if you're a Christian, don't ever say, I prayed a prayer. Don't ever say that. Don't, don't ever say that. Talk about God. You know, when you give your testimony, it should be more about Him than about you. Or you've not understood what, you, you've not understood what happened. It is all about Him. <laughs> you know, your testimony has to be about Him. Yes, of course. Insert yourself and speak, speak to how God has changed you. But if it's just I, 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 you've not understood. You've not understood what the Bible is clearly saying to us. So I know that this account is it's Muzak to, to most of us. We've heard it to have grown up in the church. We've heard this. We've heard it, we've heard it, we've heard it. But if it's Muzak to you, I, I just challenge you to repent. It should never become Muzak. It should push you to worship every time. So as we look at this, you heard me read Isaiah 53. As we look at the sacrifice of Christ, I want to challenge you to see it with fresh eyes and I hear it with fresh ears that you would endeavor to feel deeply just how magnificent this salvation is. God is the remedy to the wrath, vengeance, recompense, and terror problem that we've been talking about for eight weeks. Jesus is coming to be butchered. God is coming to be butchered for His bride. So I dare you, I dare you not to worship as we recount what the Lord has done. So here, 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 comes, here comes God incarnate on a donkey. He's riding through the gates of Jerusalem. The question is, why? Why is He coming? Why is He coming? Because God's holy and you're not. That's why. Let's just take one quick minute to remind ourselves who this is. You know, the Pharisees kept asking him who he was, and he just kept answering. He kept saying it in different ways. He said it multiple times in different ways. And I'm going to quote a couple of passages for you. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, John 8, 58. Jesus said, I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. Jesus said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, John 14, 11. So who is this on a donkey? Amazing grace? Who is this on a donkey? The God who spoke two trillion galaxies into existence? I saw, I saw on Facebook that somebody posted this thing about, here's Earth, and they just keep going out, right? And these stars just keep getting so big that Earth is less than a pixel in the picture. Okay, he just spoke it. 
He just spoke this into existence. He's the God who formed you and I from dust. He's the one that commissioned Noah and destroyed the whole world with water. He's the one that unleashed fire and brimstone on Solomon and Gomorrah. He's the God who crushed Egypt, killing every firstborn child. He's the God who terrified Moses and the Exodus Jews at Mount Sinai. He's the God who annihilated the Canaanite uh, peoples. He's the God who devastated the apostate Israel and Judah in judgment. Now I'm just going to read two of my favorite Psalms to give you a sense of who this is on the donkey. Amazing grace. <laughs> and it's small to you on Monday. It's small to you on Monday. Beloved, I know we can't stay in a perpetual state of ecstasy. That's not my point. I'm challenging you to be in a perpetual state of submission and awe and wonder and worship. That's my challenge. But I just love these two Psalms, Psalm 97 and Psalm 99 excerpts. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax. My, one of my favorite phrases, right? The mountains melt like wax before our God. <laughs> I love that. I always love that. At the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. So why has he come? It's a cosmic intervention. He's come to get his people. He's come to get his bride. The second member of the triune Godhead. You know the famous verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's why God is on a donkey. So as we look at the cross, I want us to remember it's because of your sin and mine, right? It's because of your sin and Mine. And, I, and I want us to think back, you know, we, I, I hammered this a lot, especially, especially in the prophets. The prophets just kept saying this, right? This is your evil. It's on you. I put you in paradise. I put you in paradise with one prohibition. Why is there calamity? Why is there judgment? It's on you. This is your evil. These are your abominations. As we look at the cross, this is our evil. These are our abominations. You know, I, I hear people, some pseudo-Christians talk about, well, oh, I just don't like the blood. Well, the blood's necessary because that's how heinous your sin is, right? Oh, I can't look at that. I can't think about that. That's just, that's, the cross is too brutal. Yes, it's brutal. Of course it's brutal. That's what your sin is before God. You're supposed to connect the dots, right? We're supposed to connect the dots here. Listen, I, I know I talk to you as adults. Uh, I, I, yeah, I respect you enough to talk to you like adults. I'm not going to treat you like Sunday school children. We all need to understand exactly what the Bible is saying and why it is saying this. So Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. But why would he do that? He just dismissed Judas, who's on his way to betray him. Obviously, omniscient God knows that Judas knows he'll be 
at the garden. Why does he go to the garden? Why does he go to the garden? Because he was born for this hour. He goes to the garden because it's amazing grace. He knows the multitude's going to come. He knows it. You know, his, his uh, omniscience magnifies his courage. He knows it's coming. He's not running. He's not hiding. He's not in disguise. And here comes the multitude. We're, we're looking for Jesus. I am, right? He says, I am. They all fall down. You, you know the account? It's one of my favorite texts in John. They all fall to the ground. Oh, and then they get up and tie God up. Okay? He's God. He's in charge. The whole world knows he's in charge. You read the account. He knocked them all down. Three to six hundred guys, most likely. That's what a cohort is. He knocked them all to the ground. Then they, then they presumed to tie him up. I always, always had a chuckle out of that. So the arrest was a joke. The trials were a joke, all six of them. The trials were a joke. Pilate tried to let him go because he could find no guilt in him, right? John 18, 38. So Pilate thought, it might be good if I just scourge the guy. That'll satisfy the bloodlust of the religious leaders. So they scourge God. How many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ? I presume all of you have seen it. It's an old movie now. It's very accurate, right? You know, in a scourging, a man's back would be laid open, his buttocks and the back of his legs would be laid open. And many times you could see, you could see organs and ribs and muscles, but it would just be shredded. It would just be shredded. 39 lashes. Isaiah 53, 5, you heard me read it. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And Pilate said, Behold the man, and the crowd yelled what? Crucify him. Crucify him. You remember Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Crucifixion was so horrifying that many had to be dragged there, but not Christ. They didn't have to drag Him. In fact, He carried His beam a, a large part of the way. He did not have to be dragged. This was His design. This was His purpose. And what does Hebrews 12 two say? This was His what? Anybody remember? Hebrews 12, 2. This was his joy. This is his joy. You talking about amazing grace? Now, I, I, I'm going to say something. Maybe it's a little peculiar here. But I guess your average God would just judge us. <laughs> you know, if we just had an average God. But we don't. We don't. We have a God who sacrifices Himself for His people. Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. So they took Jesus to Golgotha and the text says there they crucified Him. So they stripped Him naked. They drove Seven-inch spikes through his wrist to the crossbeam. They hoisted him vertically and drove spikes through his feet. The vertical beam was dropped into a hole. His shoulders would have dislocated. Most of you know that once a man is hanging in a vertical position, 
the way that a man dies on in crucifixion is by asphyxiation. It gets to the point where he can't push up and breathe. And it takes days sometimes. But he's in charge. Jesus gives up his spirit within hours because he's in charge. He is in charge. Isaiah 53, 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Jesus is the guilt offering for his people. I want you to hear this. He took the full. We've been talking about it eight weeks. There's a, this is a beautiful end. We've been talking about it for eight weeks. He took the full wrath, vengeance, recompense, and terror of God that you deserve on the cross. That's what he did. All this wrath, vengeance, recompense, and terror we've been talking about should land on you forever, but if you are in Christ, it won't. He took what you and I deserved. Our guilt fell to Him. His righteousness is imputed to us. <laughs> amazing grace? Yeah. It's amazing. Paul writes that He the Father made Him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So we have to consider the cross Again, that's what it cost God to redeem us out of our own depravity. Isaiah 53, 6. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Mark tells us that Jesus was on the cross for six hours. For three of those hours, darkness covered the earth. Symbolic of the fact that your sins were being laid on Him. Right? And that the Father has turned away from the Son. Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out Himself to death and He was numbered with the transgressors. That's you and me. He Himself bore the sin of many. So back to the why question. Right? Here's a good why question. There's one good why question. Who can think of what it might be? There's one good why question I love to get. Okay? Hey, if you need to ask me a why question, I'm here for you. I'm going to slap you around a little bit, okay, in a loving way. But if you have a why question, I'll do the best I can. We'll see what God says about it. He actually does answer a few, not many. But what's, what's a good why question? What is a good why question? Why would Christ die for you? Now, that's a good why question. Why would he do it? He shouldn't do it. A good judge would just send you to hell. Why would he do it? He should not do it. Let's go back to the beginning. It's not because He loves you so much. He does love you. It's for the glory. It's for the glory of God and your ultimate joy. Yes, we're, we're winners in this, but we're not central. You got to get this straight, beloved. You got to get this straight. It's not about you and me. It's about an awesome Savior. And we need to learn how to talk about it like this. Or we're going to confuse people. People are going to think, well, Jesus came for me because I'm so awesome. Wrong! You're not awesome. Nobody's awesome. There's only one. You know, I try not to use that word anymore. Or if I use it, except in relation to him, if I, if I do use it, I always try to say lowercase a. There's only one being in the cosmos who is awesome. But why would God die for me, that's a good why question. That's a real good why question.
meditate on that a little bit. I couldn't help but think of Paul's words, Romans 4 and 5. You'll remember them. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Okay? Death could not hold Him. Now we know there's a lot of pseudo-intellectuals out there who deny His physical resurrection. But this actually just comes down to one simple thing, right? Believing what the Bible says. The Bible is clear. It affirms that Jesus appeared to no fewer than no fewer than 10 times over a period of 40 days to more than 500 people. So we're either Bible believers or we're not. That's a very simple proposition. So Jesus came to save any and all who would repent and believe. So, going back to the beginning of the sermon, God is sovereign in salvation and you're responsible. These things, Both of these things are true, right? Both of these things are true. You say, Jim, I, I feel tension. Okay, feel tension. You feel tension? Okay, it's all right to feel tension. God is sovereign. God elects. But you must respond. Okay? The Bible teaches both of these things. Jim, that's too deep for me. Okay, then I think maybe you're finally getting catching a glimpse of Yahweh. Of course it's too deep. Of course it's too big. Of course it's mysterious. How could it not be? We're dealing with an infinite being here. So... You must exercise repentance that is a gift of God. I'll give you the text. 2 Timothy 2.25, repentance is a gift of God. And you must exercise faith, which is a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. You must exercise both of them. That's your responsibility. That is your responsibility before a sovereign God. You know the famous verse, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scriptures say, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Now, you know, we have to, the Bible interprets the Bible, so whoever believes and confesses, you know, boy, this has been dumbed down, right? It's just been dumbed down. If you compare it a few words... You're in, according to your average denomination. You know, I, I, I can parrot the prayer. I can parrot that. I can do that. I have mental assent. I believe historical facts. Who else believes historical facts? Satan. And every last demon believes the historical facts. Don't ever think you're a Christian because you believe historical facts. That's not the making of a Christian, Okay. The making of a Christian is to be in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The making of a Christian is John 3. You must be born again. Okay? Which is a work that God does. So let's uh, close like this. Do you really believe? Do you really believe? So we get to examine ourselves this morning. This is something a, a good pastor, not that I'm a good pastor, but this is something a, a good minister should do on occasion. You examine your heart. I mean, what are the stakes here? The stakes are huge. You examine your heart. Have you truly repented of your sin? Do you love Christ more than you love your sin? 
more than you love the reflection in the mirror, more than you love your spouse, more than you love your kids, more than you love your career, more than you love your hopes and dreams? Do you love God more? That's a hallmark of true conversion. Has there been a change in your affections? That's a hallmark of true conversions. I always love the Bible. The Bible doesn't leave us in a lurch. God tells us what born-again Christianity looks like. I'm going to share that text with you and we'll be done. 1 John 2, 3-6. through you got to love 1 John. You know, when people, and I, I hope you... I hope you can own this. When people come to you and say, am I a Christian? That's not a that's not an answer. That's not a question you can answer. That's way above your pay grade. You have to send them to God. You have to send them to first John. First John is the book of assurance. So I've had the privilege to tell many young people when they ask me, when they ask me, do you think I'm a Christian, Jim? I say, listen, I, I can't speak to that. That's between you and God. Go to 1 John and see what God says, and we'll talk some more, right? 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. How? If we keep His commandments. It's not very hard, is it? Not very complicated. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments, he's a liar, according to the Word of God. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His Word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner he walked. This is not a mystery. <laughs> this is just not a mystery. God, God has told us all that we need. We can even test ourselves. We can test ourselves by the Word of God. <laughs> you don't have to come ask me. Hey, I'll help you all I can. I'll pray for you all I can. You don't have to come talk to me. Go into the Word. Are you a Christian? It's right there. It's right here. Does that describe you? Read all of 1 John if you have questions. Does this describe you or not? So the born-again thing, it's always about a radically transformed, believing, repenting, and obeying life. So I'll close this way. You've heard me talk about the second member of the Trinity, right? You've, you've heard me talk about amazing grace. You've heard me talk about Jesus allowing Himself to be slaughtered for His bride. And I always love what the writer of Hebrews says. Just always have loved it. You'll recognize the text. And we're done. Hebrews 2.3 Truly, how shall we escape how does it finish? How shall we escape what? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There is no escape. Beloved, you, your children, your family, your neighbors, your colleagues, we must all run to Christ. For there is no escape if we neglect so great a salvation. And all the wrath Vengeance, recompense, and terror we've been talking about for eight weeks will land the one who neglects the salvation of Christ, who doesn't run to the cross, that will land on them forever. 
This is the clear teaching of the Bible. I know it's a struggle for some. I know that much of the church ignores it anymore. But Jesus has made sure. We sang it, right? I loved it when it was in the song. My debt is paid. My debt is paid. And I want to make sure that all of you are assured that your debt is paid. Go read 1 John. Give me a call. We'll talk. If you have questions, it's okay to have questions, right? Let's talk about substantive things. What's more substantive than the salvation of your soul? Paul told the Corinthians that I'm done. Remember what he said when he closed out? I think it's his second letter. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. This is what a loving pastor ought to do on occasion. So, as we contemplate the greatness of our salvation, let's examine ourselves to see if Christ is our preeminent affection. Let's pray together.